Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23, which is on page 8 of your bulletin. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me and my my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is God's word. We've been looking at the uh, life of Joseph, and we've been saying that it's one of the best narratives that proves to us that God is active in our suffering. And, you know, for instance, first uh, 36 chapters of Genesis, um, what do you see? God is audible. God is visible. He's, he appears. He appears to Abraham. He appears to Sarah. He appears to Isaac. Um, and uh, he's having conversations with them. He encounters them in person. He, he comes visually. There's smoke and there's fire and there's visions and there's, and there's miracles. And he wrestles. But then chapter 37 and on, gone. He's silent, seemingly absent. 
The, fir- the first part of uh, Genesis, you see voices, and there's miracles, and there's appearances, and there's, there's audible uh, uh, proof that there's God. But then in the life of Joseph, everything's gone. There are no voices. There's, no, there's nothing visual. There are no miracles. There's no encounter. There's nothing. And this is the point. With God, we've been saying that silence is not absence. You know, he can seem like he's hidden, but he's working actively. He's working and he's working. He's very, very active, sometimes more active than when, he's, than you, when you visually see um, him working. And last, last week we saw this. We saw this in uh, Joseph's pride and the suffering that came about because of his pride. God was working actively there. But this time we see it in a temptation of Joseph. And it's more than sexual. In fact, there are three temptations. So three temptations, three points. The first temptation, the second temptation, the third temptation. There's three points. The first temptation. We see this in the beginning of the text. The first nine verses. Um, where is Joseph now? Where is he? Joseph, he was sold by his brothers, right? Before, last we saw Joseph, he was in a pit. And he was sold off by his brothers. And he was brought to Egypt. And he ends up in the house of Potiphar. This guy Potiphar, this man, he's the officer of the Pharaoh. He's the captain of the guard. That's what it says here in the text. And what is that? What is the captain of the guard? This man, he was, he was no slouch. This is the same title that was given to uh, the Babylonian general that later destroys Jerusalem. Very, very powerful. And you see this in 2 Kings. So this man was probably the commanding general of the National Guard of Egypt or the commanding general of the armed forces in Egypt. He was probably, Egypt was the, one, of, one of the most powerful empires to date, if not the most powerful empire to date at a time. And this man was the commanding general of the armed forces of this powerful empire, which means that he's one of the most powerful people in the world. That's Potiphar. And in other words, Joseph, he was sold into Potiphar's house, and he was brought into a place of power. He was risen to a place of power. Verse 4, Potiphar trusted Joseph with everything, his house, his land, his entire estate. That means, you know, uh, he entrusted him with basically his, all of his accounts, all of his financial accounts. He had no concern to said. In fact, the only thing he worried about was what he was eating at the time. You know, God blessed the entire house, the entire estate of Potiphar, the house in the field, it says. Here's a question. How do you use power? How do you use power? Because the first temptation of Joseph is power. How do you use it? Here's two examples. Potiphar's wife, right? Verses 7 and 12. You see this. The NIV, she says, come to bed with me, if you're reading from the NIV. But if you're reading from the ESV, which is printed in the bulletin, there are three words, right? Lie with me. But that's actually, um, doesn't do justice to what she's, the forcefulness of her command, what she's actually saying to Joseph. Mainly what she's doing, she's coming to Joseph. Here's Potiphar's wife. And in Hebrew, it's only two words. The forcefulness is okay. If you try to figure out how can you say, have sex with me in two words, the crassness of it, you can formulate in your world, but, you know, but to not be crass, I'll say, he's sex right now. No, that's three words, right? You can't even, it's hard to do it. Sex now. That's what he says. That's basically what he's saying. She's saying. And she's very forceful. How does she use power? That's how she uses power. You know, you think this is about sexual desires, but it's not. It's more than that. It's about power. It's about power. This is how she uses power. She's, Potiphar's wife is accustomed to using power. The habits of her heart was so corrupted by power, by the very power that she was brought into in her home. 
She's using the power to betray, to betray, to commit adultery against her own husband. Joseph says that. How can I do this against my master, against my God? But she's using power to get what she wants, to fulfill her desires, her cravings at that moment. That's one way you can use power. But the second way, Joseph also uses power. He's been brought into a lot of power. In verse 4, it says that he's an attendant to Potiphar. He attended Potiphar, and you think, oh, he must be like the assistant to the secretary or something like that. That was not Joseph. This is the same word in Hebrew that's used to describe Joshua's relationship to Moses. Joshua succeeded Moses, one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament Bible. And so Joseph has been brought into tremendous power, but how does he use power? How does he use his abilities? Verse 5, to bless people, to bless other people. Potiphar, Potiphar didn't believe in God, but everything he had, his land, his estate, the fields, that's, you know, back in the day, you didn't have bank accounts. All you had was your wealth was determined by how many children you had and by your land. And so his house and his fields, all of his accounts, his entire 401k, everything managed by Joseph, and it was blessed. That means that he grew richer because Joseph was there. You know, that's an amazing thing. God used Joseph to bless the lands of Potiphar, a man who did not acknowledge God, a man who did not know God. He, God used Joseph, his power in society, in a culture that didn't acknowledge God, under a master that doesn't acknowledge God, and yet he still blessed him there. It's an amazing thing. And the master saw that. The master saw that this God was with him and it brought him success. And so here's Potiphar, this pluralistic man, a man who believed in many gods, who saw the relationship between Joseph and his God. It was mutual. There was this enduring faithfulness. He saw that. And remember, Joseph, he was brought into Potiphar's home as a slave and yet Potiphar realized he saw this special relationship. Here's a question. Who is the man that God uses? Who does God use? We're conditioned as a church to believe that God uses missionaries, God uses preachers, God uses pastors and ministers and evangelists. But this passage completely blows that paradigm out of the water. Who's the man that God uses in this passage? Here's Joseph, a highly successful businessman, a highly successful politician. And yet God uses him. He's not a missionary. He's not a preacher. And yet God uses this man That means that God uses us, every one of us, in every sphere of life. God uses people in every walk of life, in every sphere of life. And that means we really need to look at our jobs differently. We really need to look at what we do differently. We really need to look at our studies. And if you're in law, your legal studies, and and medicine, and in science, and technology, and in business, we really need to relook at all these things. We really need to look at how we use the arts. We need to look at these things differently. It's the great shortfall today. We think that, you know, if I have musical skills, then, um, and if I really want to use them for the Lord, then I have to join the choir or I have to join the worship team. We think that if we have operational managerial skills, then the only way that I can be used by God is if I want to serve God is if I start up a ministry or head up a ministry. We think that if we have communication skills, oh, God must be calling me to be a preacher or an evangelist or a teacher that we have to use these things in the church. But in Genesis 12, here's what happens. God tells Abraham 
that through your descendants I will bless all nations after you. I'm going to bless everyone after you through you and through your descendants. And who's one of the first descendants of Abraham? Joseph. God uses a highly successful businessman, a government leader. He uses Joseph's skills and he uses uh, his brain to mount a national hunger relief program in the future to save the country, to save his household, to save all of his descendants, to save his family, all because Joseph learns how to use his power. This passage shows us how God can use you if you learn how to use power. Joseph, he learned how to use power and not be used by power. That's Joseph. Now, how do you learn to use power and not be used by power? I'm going to give you a couple examples. One is an academic. For those of you academians, I'm going to use an academic example. And the rest of us, we're going to use more concrete examples because I need concrete examples. St. Augustine wrote probably one of his seminal works. He had many seminal works, but one of his greatest works was the city of God. The city of God. And he says in the city of God, in every city, there are two cities. There is the visible city, which is the city of man. And, but underlying this city, underneath, hidden in this city, the city of man, is the city of God, the church. The church is a city within the city. And he says, therefore, there's a heaven, in every city, there's a heavenly city and an earthly city. The city of God, city of man. And the city of God is in the city of man, hidden in the city of man. And, um, but how do you determine, how do you distinguish between the two? He says that um, the marks of the citizens in each of these two cities is what is the supreme motive that drives the citizens there. For instance, the, cit- the supreme motive of the citizen of heaven is the love of God. The love of God drives the citizen. But the supreme motive of the earthly city, of a citizen of the earthly city, is the love of self. And you see that. And one of the practical ways that this is applied, according to Augustine, is how both types of citizens use power. He says the citizens of the heavenly city are the best citizens of the earthly city. Why? Because they use their power to bless others. That's Augustine. That's literally what he said. They don't serve themselves. It's not easy. It's not easy to to use power and not be taken up by power. Whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or in public policy or in the arts, if you're a student, if you're in business or, or technology, any of these things, you can use your power to bless other people. That's Augustine. Now, some of the more concrete examples, let's bring, to bring it down to earth, I'm going to give you a negative example first. Here's a new couple. Take a new couple, and they're in a new city. They just moved, so they've got to look for a home. So they go to a real estate agent. And the real estate agent asks, well, you know, what's your take home? And they calculate, they do all the calculations based on their salaries, and they say, well, here, here's your take home. And, and, uh, and then the real estate agent takes that and he calculates, runs through all these calculations and says, well, here's the kind of house you can afford. And so they find this beautiful home. You know, they watch, you know, they watch all the shows on HGTV and they figure things out and they kind of figure out exactly what they, they finally find this beautiful home and they buy it. They buy it and they move in. And there's not much left after, you know, they realize, you know, they've they bought this house. Um, there's very little left after they spend on their weekends, you know, entertainment um, and uh, dining, eating out. After their monthly expenses, their debt, they realize they can't devote 10% of their income uh, to bless others. They have lots of money. They started out with a lot of money, but they realize after all their expenses, after all their dining and eating out and, and their entertainment and the furnishings and the dishware and all these kind of things, there's very little left to devote 10% to bless other people. 
They can't bless people through the church or through other ministries or through their charities. When you get caught up in that, what happens? Your focus turns inward. You start to think about the next promotion. You start to think about the next job because you have to keep moving up. And as you go move up, you say, then I'll have enough. But then you know what happens? And then you're residing with a different strata of people. And to keep up, you have new furnishings, a new dishware, a new dress, new clothes. You have new places to eat. That's what happens. The world assumes that your money is used for you. The world assumes that your money is for you and it's yours. That's what the world assumes. And so what happens is it's a big problem today. You know, there's tremendous statistics to show this, that we have lots of people um, that are in a particular demographic, the very mobile and wealthy population in America, they're living on margin these days. They're barely getting by. They're, they're making lots of money, but they're living all for themselves. And that cycle never ends, and it continues to grow, actually. It's consuming the world. Later on, you have children. It gets even worse. The idea of giving away any portion of your income to bless other people seems foolish when you live like that. We're over-adapted to the world. That's what happens. So the power is for you. You start to think that the power is for you, and we're easily taken up by that. But let me give you a second example. I heard this story a while ago. It's an amazing story. It's a true story. Here's a TV network executive in New York City. Um, She messed up gravely. She just messed up. It's going to cost her her job. But what happened was her superior, who had tremendous credibility in the network and very well-liked, put his credibility on the line, took the hit for her, took the blame for her. And she's amazed by that. And, you know, she said, she says, you know, I would have lost my job. He wouldn't have lost his job. He didn't lose his job. But it hurt his credibility. You know, um, and uh, he still, you know, had his job because he was well-liked. He had tremendous credibility, but his credibility was hurt. So she approached him later on in private, and she said, you know, why in the world would you do this for me? You know, I've heard of my superiors. I've experienced. I've been in the business a long time. I've seen my superiors take my credit, take credit from me. But I've never heard of anybody taking blame for me. Why would you do this? And so he takes her into a closed room, and he says, you know, I'm going to tell you. Because you asked me, I'm going to tell you this. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And I believe that um, being a Christian, it shapes the way I work. And because Jesus... Christ took the hit for me on the cross, even though on one hand I can be very excellent at what I do, I can take the hit for other people. I know I'm going to lose credibility, but Jesus Christ lost the ultimate credibility for me. I can take the hit for other people. He took the blame for me. And so, you know, she got, she was very, she was enthralled by that. She was very curious. She started to ask more questions. You know, where can I learn more about this? And so he directed her to the church. That's a very practical way, very positive way. You can be useful. Use your power in any sphere of life, in any walk of life. Very, very practical. That's the first temptation. Power. How we use power. The second one, you can't avoid the second one, right? Sexual temptation. This is the big one. It's not big because it's a bigger sin. It's big because here in this passage, it's so overt. It's so visible. You can almost hear it and see everything that's going on. She says, come to bed with me. Lie with me. Sex right now. Sex now. And he resists. He says, this is wicked. He says, this is sin. This is sin. How can I do this wickedness, this sinfulness uh, to my God? How can I do this to my God? Now, I'm going to say, I, there's a lot I could say about this, and, you know, preachers and pastors, they say a lot about this. I'm going to just say something very quickly, and then we're going to move on into the text because there's a lot more to say. The Bible says this. The Bible says, you know, um, sex is God's design for you to say to somebody else, I belong completely to you. 
socially, financially, you know, economically, psychologically, emotionally. I'm giving, my, the totality of my being is being given to you. And uh, what's on the inside is now being reflected on the outside. Sex is God's design so that we can actually have complete oneness. And if physical oneness, you know, that's sex, is an expression of total, absolute oneness, then what happens in the context of marriage when you come together, then it builds trust. Tremendous trust. It deepens trust. It's a way of giving yourself wholly to someone in a covenantal relationship. It will never be broken. That's what you're saying. You know, that can only happen in the context of marriage. Now, when you give yourself sexually, and you're, you know, what you're saying is, you know, in this case, Potiphar's wife, you know, she's already married, but she's trying to give herself sexually to another man. What she's really saying is, I want physical oneness. You know, I want that thrill, the emotional thrill, the physical thrill of that, but I'm not ready for total, absolute oneness. That's what we're saying. Saying, I want you, but I don't want to entrust my entire life to you, not all of me to you. That actually doesn't deepen trust. It actually deepens distrust over time. That's what happens. Sex in itself is tremendous power. This whole passage is about power. Tremendous power. You are holding tremendous power. But if you can't control yourself, if you can't control that, you're going to be taken up by sex. You're going to be taken up by that power. And that's Potiphar's wife. She has great power, but it makes her weak. Does she look strong to you here? She's the wife of one of the most powerful people in the most powerful empire to date. But does she look strong to you here in this text? Very, very weak. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, flee sexual desires, flee temptation, you know, sexual temptation. And when he uses the word flee, he's actually alluding to what Joseph does here. Joseph literally flees. I mean, his coat is left behind. He's always losing his coat, Joseph. That's his story. Okay, he's never got a coat, all right? He can't hold on to his clothes, all right? Um, and, uh, but, but he's writing, he says, he says, flee sexual temptation, flee sexual desires. What he's talking about is integrity. He says, hey, you want you to have sexual integrity in your life. You know, what is integrity? Very, very quickly, I'm going to go into this, okay? And I'm going to stop this, the talk about this, the sex portion of this. Two definitions. First, Integrity. When you are at war, you're, you're a ship out, out of war, and you're a captain of the ship, one of the biggest, most important questions that you can ask your crewmates, you know, cannons are flying and the waves are, are, are crash, crashing against the ship. You say, you know, what's the integrity of the ship? What you're really asking is, how is this ship holding together against the, in the war? How's it holding together? Now, you take that definition what does it mean to have personal integrity in life? What you're really saying is, when you think about integrity, you're saying, how well is your body and your soul and your mind, your heart, everything, how well is it holding together? You see, if the inside things are holding together, then the outside has to hold together. That's called integrity. Everything's integrated together. Everything's holding well together. But on the one hand, if you're inside, you want to hold together, but on the outside, you cannot hold together. What's happening? You're disintegrating. You're falling apart. Paul's calls, Paul here, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about sex. He says, I want you to hold together. Totally. Absolutely. If you're giving your life in every aspect to something, then you're going to give your body to something. If you haven't given your, another, another way of saying that is, if you haven't given your life to something, then you're not going to give your body to something. Your body is going to be integrated with everything you believe. It's impossible to separate the two. What you really believe is how you're really going to be on the outside. Okay? Now, uh, to close that part, you know, one thought, you know, some of you are saying, oh, man, you're making me feel guilty because I've been through a lot and I've made a lot of mistakes. Brother, brothers and sisters, it's, 
There is nothing more amazing than the grace of God. He's so quick to forgive, and he's so gracious to forgive. Only God can do that. You can't get rid of that on your own. Only God can do that. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. God is so faithful in that way. But I, what I'm trying to do is I want you, for once, to open your mind. He says, you've got to have an open mind, Donnie. That's the 1950s. I want you to open your mind and view sex in a very, very different way. View it as a measure of integration. Integration in your life. Holistic unity in your life, okay? Now, how does Joseph resist? Joseph, he resists, right? He flees. Before he even flees, he actually says to her. He tries to reason with her, you know? How can I do this? How can I do this to my God? You know, and most people believe that that's, Joseph is just executing self-control. It's a matter of the will, and it's so opposite. It's the opposite of that. That's completely not the case here. Joseph is not looking inside to suppress his desires. That's not what he's doing, you know. Um, in actuality, he's looking on the outside. He says, how can I do this? The first time that he actually mentions God, since the beginning of this episode, this narrative about Joseph, this is the first time he mentions God. He says, how can I do this to God? How can I do this to hurt my relationship with God? That's basically what he's saying. He looks on the outside. He says, how can I trample on the God of my life? You know, notice, he doesn't say, oh, you're so old, you're so disgusting, I'm going to go run away. That's not what he says here. Joseph looks at Potiphar's wife. Potiphar, one of the most powerful people in, in Egypt, that means that his wife was probably very, very attractive, very, very beautiful, and wielding that power of that beauty and the power of that power in that household. And Joseph says, Joseph doesn't say, ew, you're disgusting. That's not what he says. He says, how can I do this? She's attractive. How can I give in to that and, hurt and, and trample on the God of my life? That's what he's saying. What does he mean by that? I wonder, what does he really mean by this? Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob, married Rachel. He loved Rachel. He loved Rachel. In fact, he loves Joseph because of his love for Rachel. You know, Joseph was like his favorite because of Rachel. You know how Jacob married Rachel? He worked seven years, hard labor for Rachel. No vacation. No, he didn't say, what are my benefits? That's not, where, you know, before I signed this contract, what are my benefits? That's no question about benefits. He didn't ask for a break. He didn't ask for time off. You know, he didn't ask for leave. He didn't ask for rights. There was no union to join. no. Complete self-control. He worked seven years hard labor. Genesis chapter 29, he's just working. In fact, he works 14 years to earn Rachel as his wife. Hard labor. But the text says the first seven years, it seemed like only a few days for him because of his love for her. Complete self-control. Now, it's not like he didn't have the desires that every man has. He had tremendous desires. Very, very passionate man. You know, he, and he also wants a break. He wants vacations. He wants, he's got self-pity in his life, and, he, and he's, got, he's got tremendous desires, but he desired those things less than his desire for Rachel. His love for Rachel mastered him in every way so that his body, his heart integrated, and he's just working and working and working for it. That's Joseph because of his love. His love for Rachel mastered and suppressed all the other desires. It's not the will of his life. It's not his will. It's not self-determination. It was a greater love that he had for Rachel that defeated all the loves that he has, all the cravings of his life. You know, if you try to suppress your passions, you're not going to be able to keep it up. If you get married and you're just using your will to suppress your desires, you're not going to be able to keep that up. But, you know, 
you need something that's going to reorder all the loves of your life. Every one of us here are mastered by many loves. What you need is a supreme master love that masters over those things. You need a Rachel in your life. Everybody here needs a Rachel. Everybody here has a Rachel that actually masters everything that they do. You know, and um, what does Joseph, what was Joseph master? What was his, his Rachel? He says, it's my God. How can I trample on God? He says, how can I trample on my master, Potiphar? And how can I do this to God? That's what he says. You know, uh, <clears throat> love is one of those things that integrates the body and the soul. My favorite book, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, um, one of the final passages you know, in that book, beautiful, Mr. Darcy, wonderful Mr. Darcy, goes to Elizabeth Bennet. What does he say? You have bewitched me, body and soul, totality of my being. You have, and that's the reason why everything, he says, it's all for you. Everything I do is for you. you have be, it's the wonderful love story. You have bewitched me, body and soul. Every one of us needs that in our life. We have that in our life. How does the beauty of God bewitch us? body and soul, in a way that it masters over everything else that we desire. How does it do that? And this is the answer. You need to look to the other Joseph. A more beautiful Joseph, a more desirable Joseph. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the exact radiance of God, the exact representation of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. That means that Jesus, as beautiful as God is, Jesus was that, was that beauty. And yet, in Isaiah 53, you know, just like Joseph, he had power. Just like Joseph, he had beauty. He was handsome, right, in that sense. He was, he was beautiful. He was glorious. But Isaiah 53, it says that we could not recognize Jesus. We would not be able to recognize him. That means he lost his beauty. He had all beauty. He lost beauty. He had all glory. He gave up his glory. He emptied himself of his glory. Jesus had all power. He gave up his power. He lost his power. He had all majesty. He lost his majesty. He gave up his majesty. Joseph was thrown in jail with criminals, other criminals. And yet he was wrongly accused. He, He didn't commit any crime. He wasn't the criminal here. Jesus also was arrested, but he wasn't a criminal. In Isaiah 53, it said he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, but he himself did not sin. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized. We talked about this last week. The heavens opened up. God shined up on Jesus. The Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and God, doting on his son, said, This is my son whom I love. This beautiful, amazing, remarkable man, my son, Jesus. But then immediately after, immediately after he's, he's thrown into the wilderness. He enters into the wilderness, suffering, this foreign place, just like Joseph. Joseph, thrown into the pit. He's given the coat, thrown into the pit. Joseph, Jesus, baptized, beautiful. This is my son, immediately into, into a foreign place. He's in the wilderness. And there, Jesus is tempted three times. Jesus is tempted three times. And each time, it's about fulfilling himself. Each time, it's about saving himself, rescuing himself, fulfilling himself, Without having to suffer. Joseph, you know, he's tempted to have his appetite filled. He's tempted to use his power to uh, preserve himself, self-protection. Jesus, the three temptations, turn these breads into stone. Fulfill yourself. You know, these kingdoms will bow down to you. You will have power, he says. He says, go to this high place in the temple and jump off and you'll be rescued. You will be rescued without any suffering. 
And uh, you know, Jesus is tempted with all these things. He's enticed with all these things. And yet Jesus also resists. He resists, completely resists. Joseph resisted each time, but Jesus also resists each time. There's, and in fact, when he's arrested, he makes no defense of what he has. He doesn't say, you know, wait a second, you, I'm wrongly accused, I'm wrongly. That's not what he see. You notice Joseph, in the first, uh, last week, in chapter 37, he's in the pit, he's crying out, and his brothers wouldn't hear him. This time around, he's thrown into jail. You don't hear him saying, you know, I demand, you know, a trial. You don't hear him saying that. He's quiet. Jesus also stays quiet. Jesus was hungry and he was weak. He had appetites. But how did he overcome? How did he overcome the temptations in his life? You know, in the wilderness, in Hebrews chapter 12, gives us a great, the author of Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a great answer. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. For the joy set before him, what was Jesus' joy? That means that on, on the cross, he's suffering, and yet there was a joy that he had in mind. Jesus, his Rachel was you. Jesus' Rachel, Jesus' all-encompassing beauty that he had set before him that's going to make him labor, make him work. He's going to endure it all. He can ask for a break. He, he wants a break. He needs a break. He wants vacation. He wants his rights. He wants benefits because he's Jesus. And yet he says, I'm going to forsake these things and I'm going to labor and I'm going to work and I'm going to groan and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to endure all these things. Why? Because of my Rachel. Because if I do this, I will get my Rachel. It's you. It's us. That's Jesus' supreme uh, beauty that he's shooting for. That's what he had in mind. And that's what makes us him love to the end. Jesus will love us to the end. That we are the reason that he endured. We are the reason that he, he suffered. And we are his bride. The church is his bride. Jesus on the cross is saying, you know, why is he going to the cross? He's saying, it's all for you. You have bewitched me, body and soul. Body and soul. That's Jesus. When you see Jesus doing that for you, that you are his Rachel, he becomes your Rachel. Doesn't that move you? Doesn't that get you? He becomes your Rachel. You start to see his beauty. Jesus becomes your Rachel. He becomes your passion. He becomes that supreme desire. And as he becomes your supreme desire, it's going to order all of the other desires in your life. You've got to reflect on his beauty, who he is, what he's done for you. Let the love of God master over all your desires, every other desire. And, and that's going to bring us to the last point. And, and it's very quick. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is spoiled and he's arrogant. He's a fool. He's evil. You remember that, right? He brings a bad report about his brothers. Now, just as things are finally starting to go well for Joseph, he's rising the corporate ladder, you know. And uh, he's getting tremendous esteem and he's becoming rich and he's becoming powerful. And, and this time he does the right thing. Before he was doing the evil thing and he was thrown into a pit. Now he's doing the right thing. And, yet, and he's resisting temptation and yet what happens? Life just completely blows up. It blows up right in front of his face. He does the right thing and he ends up in prison. You know, and, uh, and, and that's an amazing thing. It, this prison is like, this is the king's prison. It's like death row. You know, there was, there was no trial back then. If you're thrown into jail, you're, you're going to be there either to rot or to be executed. And you're going to see that in the next, next week's passage. He's there to get executed. And yet, you know, what is the last temptation then for Joseph here? It's the temptation to despair. You know, it's the temptation to, to despair and suffering. 
You know, the first time he was despairing, he's in the pit. My brothers have betrayed me. They, they threw me away into this pit. They left me for dead. And sure, he's despairing. But this time around, you don't see that. You don't see him despairing. There's no despair. And, and what is it about Joseph's story here that's going to teach us then to suffer and not despair? Here's Joseph's story. We have a perspective. If Joseph, we talked about this last week, if he had not gone to prison at this point, then he would never have encountered uh, the other criminals of the king. And then he would never have encountered the king, the pharaoh himself. He would never have been able to launch that massive hunger relief program. He would never have been able to save his family. He would never have been able to save uh, his people, God's people. None of these things would have happened had he not been sent to prison. You know, it's kind of like the same thing that happened the last time around. You, these things never would have happened. And, and you notice this time around, you know, he doesn't scream. He doesn't yell. He doesn't complain. There's none of that. Why? He's starting to get it. Joseph's starting to get it now. First time around, he was prideful. He's arrogant. This time around, it's happened already. It's happened before. Now he knows God is active. Remember, this passage, first time, he mentions God. He's starting to get it. He says, something's happening here. God is doing something. And, and, and you start to, he's starting to get it. He's starting to be moved by it. God is slowly becoming his supreme desire. And it's ordering all of his other desires. You don't think that he thinks he's got rights? You don't think that he, he feels wrongly accused? He knows. He resisted. And yet, he's starting to get it. You don't see self-pity here. You know, if he didn't see God working here, there would be self-pity. There would definitely be, you know, he'd be like, this is my lot in life. It keeps happening to me. I keep losing my coat. You know, I can't, I don't, I can't have anything for myself, not even my coat. You know, how, how do we see Joseph? What does Joseph see in this text that we don't see? How can we see it? I'm going to give you a very, very brief, very brief, in a couple minutes, so that we can close, a scriptural lesson on how to interpret the Bible here, you know, because it happens all the way in the text. Um, When you get to read the Bible after a while, you start to see patterns, word patterns, phrase patterns. One of the things you see, and there's at least eight or nine of these, but I'm just going to point out like three of them, okay? You notice that there's a parallel between verse 2 and verse 21, okay? Um, And you see the Lord was with Joseph, you see that there's a parallel between verse 3 and verse 22. In, in the, I guess in the ESV, it's the word did. You know, verse 3, you see that all that he did to succeed in his hands, right? And uh, in verse 22, you see that as well. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And it's all in the context of success. You see that, right? So the patterns, even the patterns are the same. Um, verse 4 and verse 23, you see this as well. You see the pattern in verse 4 and verse 23. Joseph was left in charge here of all that Potiphar had. And verse 23, everything in the prison then, after a while, became left in Joseph's charge. You start to see these patterns. So A, B, and C. And it's done in that particular order. And actually, like I said, there's about eight of them here. I can't go into all those in detail. But you see this kind of, what they call this kind of structure here. And whenever you see that in, in Scripture, it's everywhere in the Bible. No matter who the author is, no matter when it was written, you see that structure. In this chunk, you see the Lord was with Joseph, and here's how it happened. Everything became successful. And in the bottom chunk, even though he's in jail, in the first part, everything's great. And the Lord made him succeed. In the bottom part, everything's terrible. And yet, the Lord was with him, and everything succeeded. What does that mean? That in that chunk in the middle, that's how God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. This is how God was with him. That means in the temptation, 
In the suffering of that temptation, God was there. God was active. This is how God worked. Because the temptation happened right after the success and the temptation happened right before the jail. God was with him. That's how he was with him. In the first part, everything's going great. The Lord is with Joseph. In the last part, everything's going bad. The Lord is with Joseph. God was with Joseph beginning to the end. What's the purpose of the middle? It's to show us how he was with him. The first time, chapter 37, he lost his coat. He lost his garment. It was in sin. This time, he lost it in righteousness. He lost his garment in in righteousness. He did the right thing. He's becoming humble. Joseph is changing. That's what you're seeing here. God was with him to change Joseph. He's, he's moving him. He's changing him. God is not absent. He's very active. He's working in Joseph's heart. And, and this moves us to the ultimate Joseph who lived the perfect life. He lived an absolutely righteous life. The, the greater Joseph lived the perfect life and yet his life completely blew up all the way to the cross. In Gethsemane, Jesus says, my soul is grieved to the point of death. You know why he says that? Because in Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed, in Gethsemane, he's now reflecting on what's going to happen to him over the next several days. He's going to suffer the cross. And it's not just the the pain of the nails and the crown on it. It's not just that. He's going to suffer the ultimate suffering of God forsaking him on the cross. And it, it said that sweat poured down and it was like drops of blood. That's what it said. He's completely in agony. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying? God is not present. God has forsaken me. God is absent. In other words, I am in despair. That's why we don't have to despair. Because because Jesus suffered the ultimate despair. He suffered the ultimate pit. He suffered the ultimate abandonment. And what he's basically saying is, you know, so that you can hold together, my life is disintegrating. God is being torn away. They were one. God is being, my body and my soul are literally being torn apart. That's Jesus. I'm disintegrating. Why? So that you can hold together. I have to close. There's so much more I'd love to say here, but I'm going to close. Jesus lost the presence of the Father so that we can have his active presence in our lives. Even when you can't see it, will you start to get it? When you're suffering, it can be the smallest suffering. Everyone has got their measure. You can't diminish anyone. You can't be like, well, you're suffering. Look at my suffering. You can't do that. Let's all look at Jesus' suffering. Our suffering is there, and it's big in our lives for that purpose. God was using it to shape and transform Joseph in every way. And if you take that in and remember that you are his Rachel, he will become your Rachel. And you will love him and you will let that love master over even how you respond to your sufferings. Joseph, he was becoming mastered. In just two chapters, you're starting to see a transformation, amazing, remarkable transformation. Let's live that in every walk of our lives. If when you do that, you can resist. You can resist temptation. You can flee. Let that love be the supreme love in your life. Let that every single time, let that love be the supreme love in your life. Let it master over every one of your desires. And it will make you a better citizen. You will become a great citizen. You will use your power to bless other people. And God will use you to bless this amazing city with amazing needs in your workplace. You don't even have to, you know, of course I want everybody to join our community projects and do all these things, but in the, way, the best way that you can be a citizen of God's city is to be great at what you do on earth.
Strive to be the best. Not, so, not out of comp- competition. That's using power to be taken up by power. But because God is your Rachel, you are willing to work and serve and bless other people. Will you take that in? The deeper you take that in and you plant that, you will become, truly, you will understand what it means. It will, it will nourish you. It will feed you. It will bless you as well. Let's pray.